Good morning. It is a blessing to be with you here again. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will. I'm the pastor here at Tri-Village, and it's a blessing to have you here this morning. And if you are visiting us here for the first time, you have come on the perfect week because this morning we are continuing our series entitled Rejoice. And the reason why we've named this Advent series Rejoice is because what we are doing in this series is we are looking at the lives of people who, who, who were a part of the Christmas story who on the surface had no reason to actually rejoice, but because of the gospel, they found reason to rejoice in the midst of their pain, their circumstances, and their issues. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 26 through, sorry, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 36. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 36. And as you turn there, what you're going to see is that the, the passages, the verses that we are looking at this morning have to do with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Okay, so Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, uh, 26 through 30, 56, sorry, through 56. All right, now here's the thing. Here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, what we're going to do is we are going to look at Mary's story and we are going to look at her story under six headings. Now, some of you are really worried right now because I preach uh, a one point or on two points and it's like 50 minutes, okay? And so you're thinking, man, if he's preaching six points, we're going to be here until three o'clock. But I promise that I will try to be brief, okay? So I'll get you out in like two and a half hours. Now, here's the thing. What, what we're going to see here in this passage, and the reason why I broke it down into six sections is because what Mary does is in this passage, Mary is confronted with the gospel, with the unexpected gospel message. And what she does is she responds to that gospel message in six different ways. There are six responses that she has, and what she does is she actually provides a model for us on how we should be responding to the gospel when the gospel is presented to us. And so this sermon this morning is not just for the people who haven't placed their faith in Jesus yet, but it's also for the people who have placed their faith in Jesus, because we are constantly interacting with the gospel, and Mary gives us a model, an example, on how to engage with the gospel on a daily basis, okay? So for the first time and the 500th time, this is the model that we are given. And so in this passage, Mary, she responds to the gospel in six ways, if you can put those six ways up. The first thing she does is she thinks. The first thing Mary does when she's confronted with the unexpected gospel is she thinks. The second thing she does is she questions. The third thing she does is she surrenders. The fourth thing she does is she communes. The fifth thing she does is she worships. And then the final thing she does is she foreshadows, okay? And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time is we're going to look at the six ways in which Mary engages with this unexpected gospel. So the first thing Mary does in light of the passage is she thinks, is she thinks. Where do I get that from? Well, if you look at verse 26 of chapter 1, look what it says. Look what it says here. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, it says, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And then look at verse 29. This is very important. Don't miss this. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Okay? So according to verse 29, the first way in which Mary responds to the gospel is she thinks. How do I know that? Well, because if you look at the passage, those two words, the words troubled and the word wondered, both have to do with thinking. 
Here's what the word troubled in Greek means. The word troubled in Greek, it means to be confused by something. It means to be confounded by something. So it has to do with your mind, right? But then the word wondered, and I don't like the way the, the, that the, the, the Bible, the, the, the NIV translates this from the Greek. The word wondered there in English comes off like she's in awe, like, oh, wow, I never, I've never seen this before, right? But the word wondered in Greek, what it actually means, it means to, to think thoroughly about something. It means to, to take an audit. It's a financial term. So it means to take an, an audit and to try to add things up. It literally means to balance the accounts, Okay. So she's in, she's in, she's in, she's in, in like wandering in awe at the heart level. What, what we see here is that she's thinking. It means to think clearly, to reason, to, to process something completely. That's what she's doing. It's a thorough thinking that she is doing in this story. And so we see that the first response that Mary has to the gospel is she thinks because both the, world both the word troubled and the word wondered have to do with her mind. Now, the reason why that's so important for us, and I need you to, to pay attention to this, is because what usually happens with both non-Christians and Christians is we assume that when I consider Christianity, I have to turn my brain off, right? So some of you this morning, you're sitting here, and maybe the reason why you haven't considered Jesus, maybe you grew up in the church, or maybe you've never been in church in your life, but part of the reason why you're not considering Jesus is because you're like, I'm a modern person. I'm a modern person, and because I'm a modern person, I just can't blind, with blind faith accept everything that the Bible says. And so you look at Mary's story, and you're like, well, of course she does that. She's a primitive, biblical, simple-minded 13-year-old girl in the Bible. Of course she's going to believe what the angel says. Of course she's just going to accept it wholesale. But what's interesting about the passage is that's not what Mary does. Mary is, 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 she, she's, is presented with the gospel and what she does is she responds with her head first, not her heart first. She, she thinks about it. She actually thinks, and not just thinks superficially, but she thinks deeply about it because both the word troubled and the word wondered point to us to a very, point to a very deep thought. She isn't just accepting it wholesale. So, so one of the things that modern people think is, oh, well, of course she did that because they're, they're biblical people. They were simple-minded folk. They had a lower IQ than us. But what we see is that Mary doesn't turn her brain off she turns her brain on, and she's thinking about what she saw. She is considering. She is pondering. She is assessing and auditing and balancing the book. She's thinking. She's thinking. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, well, the reason why I can't consider Jesus is because I am a thoughtful person. It means I can't believe in things like that because I am a modern person. Well, you know what that is? That's actually lazy thinking. And you're being lazy, actually. Because Mary doesn't stop thinking, Mary thinks more. She turns her brain on more when she sees it. She's thinking deeply about what she is being presented with. And so here's what this means, and I don't want you to miss this. What this means is this. God doesn't want your blind faith. And so if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian or you are a Christian and you think that your faith is all about blind faith and just shutting off your brain, then you haven't read the Bible right. Because God wants you not only to think, he wants you to think more than what you're currently thinking. And so this morning, the reason why we should be rejoicing, one of the reasons why we should be rejoicing is because of reason. Reason should be one of the reasons that we rejoice. We think our way to rejoicing. Reason leads to rejoicing if we do it the right way. Isn't that, isn't that amazing that God doesn't want you to shut off your brain? Our brains were given to us by God. Our minds were given to us by God. Our intellect was given to us by God. And God wants us to engage with him at the head level first. Look at this quote from Dr. John Stott, who passed away a few years ago. 
He says, knowledge is indispensable to Christian life and service. Then he says, if we do not use the mind that God has given us, we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality and cut ourselves off from many of the riches of God's grace. See, a lot of us this morning, we are settling for spiritual superficiality. Since you turned your brain off when you came into Christianity, there are things, there are aspects, there are riches of God's grace that you haven't experienced and you won't experience because they require deep thought. And so the first thing Mary does is she thinks. And you're thinking, oh, well, because I'm modern, there's a bunch of challenges and obstacles that I have to overcome. Well, maybe Mary didn't have the same obstacle and challenges, but I promise you that she had obstacles and challenges. Because as a Jewish woman, no, one, no Jew had seen an angel uh, uh, for, for, for centuries, okay? And then not only that, but as a Jewish woman, it, there's no religion that's more monotheistic than Judaism, so they thought God was only one. So when an angel shows up and says, hey, the, the Lord that sent me is going to be the Lord that's in your belly. That, that's a very unbelievable claim to a Jewish person who only believe in one God. The Lord who sent me is the Lord that's going to be in your belly. So maybe she didn't have the same obstacles to overcome, but she had intellectual obstacles to overcome. And so if your reason for not believing in Jesus this morning or considering Jesus is because Christianity requires blind faith, then let me get that excuse off the table for you, for you because that's not the case. And you know what? The reason why a lot of people who are considering Christianity or not considering Christianity think that is because Christians make them think that. Because when they debate with Christians, Christians are like, just turn your brain off. It's all about blind faith. And the problem is that the Christians are reading the Bible themselves. And so they're misrepresenting Christianity because you have to turn your brain on to accept God, not turn it off. Okay? So the first thing that we are called to do, the first thing that Mary does in response to this unexpected gospel is she thinks. But the second thing, according to the passage that Mary does uh, in response to this unexpected gospel is she questions. She questions. And look what she says. Look at the next section. Um, it says here uh, in verse 29. Let me read verse 29 again. It says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Then verse 30 says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And look what it says in verse 34. Okay, listen to this. Mary doesn't say, oh, thank you, God. Okay, I get it now. Oh, oh, oh it, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great. Whatever you say, I'll do. No, 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 no. It says in verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? So she's already thought deeply about this, and then he gives her another promise, and then she questions God. She has the audacity to doubt God, right? That's what she's doing here. She's, she's doubting God. Now, now, one of the people that I studied this week just getting ready for this was, was Dr. Tim Keller. And, and his, what he says about this section is just is so awesome. It's so nuanced, right? Here's what he has to say. Here's what he has to say about doubt. Here's how we usually deal with doubt. When, when, when doubt is brought to the table, there are two responses that take place. Religious people are freaked out by doubt. And then secular people worship doubt. Okay? So here's what religious people do. If you're a Christian person, if you're a Christian parent and your child comes up to you and says, hey, mom and dad, I think I might be doubting my faith a little bit. It's like all hands on deck, red alert, it's over. And you'll tell them, That's, you can't doubt. That's not from the Lord. You're sinning right now. You need to stop. Don't ever doubt ever under any circumstances. That is wrong and we should never doubt, right? 
Or, or, the, or the, the, the teenager goes to his youth pastor and says, hey, I'm struggling with A, B, and C, and I'm doubting. Wait, 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 what? Stop youth group. We have a Judas in our midst. Religious people freak out when you bring up doubt. That's one extreme, right? The people who freak out. And then the secular people, they worship doubt. In our secular world, doubt is the end of all ends. It's not a means to an end. It is the end of all ends. It is the ultimate destination. As a matter of fact, in our secular world, one of the ways that you can tell you are modern, one of the ways that you can tell that you have made it is that you doubt everything. Doubt is gross in the Christian world and is God in the secular world. Right? That's how people respond. But what's amazing here, this is what Keller says, that the way that the Bible deals with doubt is not this black or white thing. It's this very nuanced. The Bible's view of doubt is very nuanced. And here's why. Because for those of you who were here a couple weeks ago when we were looking at Zechariah, when God makes the promise to Zechariah, Zechariah doubts too, right? But here's what's crazy. He punishes Zechariah when he doubts, and then he blesses Mary. So what's What's the point? What's going on? Like, is he a schizophrenic angel? You know what I mean? Like, is he bipolar? Is he like, is it good cop, bad cop? Like, what, what's going on here? Right? Why would he allow one person to doubt and then turn around and not let the other person doubt? He punishes one and then he blesses the other. Why? And here's what Keller says. Keller says that the reason why Zechariah is punished and Mary is blessed is because there are two different kinds of doubt. There is good doubt that the Bible encourages, and then there is sinful doubt that the Bible discourages. So the good doubt is the doubt that Mary displays, because this is what good doubt is. Good doubt, biblical doubt, is an, is an open-minded doubt, a humble doubt that is willing to change its mind if the right information is presented. That is biblical doubt, okay? That's the kind of doubt that Mary has. Mary's not doubting the plan. She's just trying to figure out what it's going to look like, Right? She's not saying this can't happen. She's saying, how is this going to happen? Right? So, so biblical doubt is, is open-minded, it is humble, and it is willing to change its, its view on something. Sinful doubt, unbiblical doubt, is the doubt that Zechariah shows, and that's closed-minded. It is stubborn doubt. It is cynical doubt. It is the type of doubt, you know, you know, you guys have people like this in your life, right? There are certain people in your life who don't know Jesus yet, who, who when they doubt, you can tell, okay, you're doubting this, but you really do want an answer. Like, you're actually searching for God in this. Like, you really, if you find the right information, you will eventually change your mind. But then there's some people in your life that every time you see them during the holiday season, every time you interact with them, maybe it's your spouse, whoever it is in your life, you, you talk to them, and you can tell that their doubt is this closed-minded, stubborn, cynical doubt. And they don't even care if you answer the question. They just don't want God to control their lives. And you, you get to a point where you're like, why am I even arguing with this person? Because it's not good doubt. They're not trying to be transformed. They're not trying to be convinced. They want to stay exactly where they are. They're in control and God is not. And so what he says, what, 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 what Keller argues is that those are the two types of doubts. There is there's biblical, open-minded, humble doubt that is willing to change. And then there is sinful, stubborn, cynical, stuck-in-your-way doubt. So the Bible has such a nuanced view of doubt where the Bible says doubt as much as you want as long as it's the good doubt, as long as you're willing to be convinced. So some of you are here are sitting here and maybe you're doubting God's promises. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're doubting God's power. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're doubting God's presence. Listen, doubting is fine as long as you're willing to be convinced, as long as you're open and humble and willing to, to, to accept new information when it's presented. But if you're sitting here this morning and you've been doubting God since day one, but the reason why you're actually doubting is not because you want to be convinced, but because you want to stay where you are. And so anytime a Christian brings the gospel to you, you use these crazy red herring, non sequitur responses to keep people off your trail, then there's a problem. Right? 
I heard a story once about, a, about an atheist. He says that for a long time, the reason why he was an atheist wasn't because he didn't believe in God, but he didn't want to stop sleeping with his girlfriend. It had nothing to do with theology. I just know that if I believe God, I got to start changing my behavior. I'm not ready for all that. Right? And so the Bible is fine with doubt as long as it's open and, and as long as doubt is a means to an end and not an end in itself. In the secular world, doubt is an end in itself. That means you have made it. If you doubt everything, you've matured and you've made it in the secular world. Doubt is not an end in itself. The doubt is fine as long as it's a means to an end, and that end is the gospel. See, here's the problem with us. I would argue this. Our problem is not that we doubt too much. Our problem is that we don't doubt enough. That, I think that's what our problem is. We actually don't doubt enough. And here's what I mean. What we do is we take God's truth and at one level, we, so we doubt the truth. So we go one level into our doubt. What I would argue is that we actually have to go another level. We have to doubt the doubt. Don't just doubt the truth, but doubt the doubt. So the problem with a lot of us is that we're not doubting enough. We're only doubting one layer down. But if we use the same line of questioning that we use for the truth on our doubt, our doubt would disappear. So your problem is not that you, don't, you doubt too much. Your problem is that you don't doubt enough. You need to start doubting the doubt, and then the doubt is gone. Okay, so the first, thing, the first thing that Mary does, if you could put the six, the six things back up, the first thing Mary does in response to this unexpected gospel is she thinks. The second thing she does in response to the unexpected gospel is she questions. And then the third thing, according to the passage, that she does in response to the gospel is she surrenders. She surrenders. And look what it says here in the next section. This is so cool. It says in verse 35, it says, The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who, has, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Then it says in verse 37, For no word from God will ever fail. And look how Mary responds. Look at this response of, of surrender and submission. She says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And so the third thing that Mary does in response to this unexpected gospel is she surrenders. She surrenders to God. Now think about how hard this would have been for Mary. Everything, the, the, the thing about Mary, and this is part of the reason why she thinks and she questions, is that in many ways she's the most unexpected candidate of all time. There's nothing about Mary that would make you choose Mary as the person God would reveal herself to. Everything in the culture was against her. She is the epitome of the person who lives on the other side of the tracks. Like she's the epitome of that. So think about it. She's young. She's a woman. She's a, 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 a Jew, which Jews were... were, were the lowest of the lows in, that, in those, those regions, okay? She was unwed and she was, and she was about to be a single mom. Everything. And then not only that, but if, if, if all those things aren't enough, even geographically she was the, the wrong candidate. Because according to Micah, the Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem, and according to the passage, she lived in Nazareth. So the women in Bethlehem were always checking, oh, this might be Jesus, like, this might be God, like, I'm, I'm ready, Right? But if you didn't live in Bethlehem, why were you worried about it? You don't even live in the town that he's supposed to arrive in. So there was nothing about Mary that made her the, the, the likeliest candidate to receive this, right? That's why she has to think about it. That's why she has to, 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 to question it. That's why she has to process it. Because here's the thing. The, 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 the crazy thing about Mary is that Mary had to surrender a lot in order to take this upon herself. 
And we actually don't really understand how much she surrendered. But I'm going to try to unpack for you some of the things that Mary had to surrender in order for her to say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. There's a couple things. There's more than a couple, but I'm only going to give you a couple. You see, the first thing that Mary had to surrender, if this was true and she was God's servant, is she had to surrender her reputation. You know why? Because Mary didn't know, that's a song, Mary, don't you know? But Mary didn't know that, 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 that uh, uh, she, didn't, he, she had no idea that the angel was going to go to Joseph. He didn't tell her that. So for all she knew, by accepting and surrendering to this, she was going to be a single mom for the rest of her life. She could have been potentially killed according to the law because of her cheating, but she was going to be a single unwed mom who was called an adulterer for the rest of her life. So by submitting to this, she was willing to accept, she was willing to accept and surrender her reputation. She was willing to surrender her reputation for her son, okay? But that's not the only thing that she surrenders. The other thing that Mary surrenders by saying, I am the Lord's servant, she was also surrendering control. And she surrenders control at two levels. The first thing that she surrenders control over is she's surrendering control over her life. Because by her accepting this offer, what she's doing is she's telling God, she's, she's taking her hands off her life, and she's saying, my life will no longer be the same as a result of this. There's no way that she can be the same person at this. So she's losing control over her life by surrendering to this. But you know what's so interesting? In one of the passages I looked at said this, she not only was giving up control of her life, but she was actually giving up control over her child. And here's why. Because the angel tells her the baby's name will be Jesus. See, one of the things that has been interesting to me as I've parented, you know, for five years is that the older my child, my children get, the more I realize that I have no control over their lives. None. And what seemed like control when I was younger was only, when they were younger, it was because they're stuck in my house and I can yell at them, right? But the older they get, the more you realize you have no control over your children. And one of the few things that a parent actually has that can, can be described as control is that you get to name your child. Mary doesn't even get to name him. God says, listen, 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 this baby's different. You're not going to have control over this baby. This baby is coming pre-named. And his name is Jesus, which means Jehovah saves. In other words, you're not going to control this child. You're not, you're not gonna, uh, this child's not going to serve you. You are going to serve him. This is the first baby in human history, and the, fir- the, the, baby, the first baby ever since then, to be older than his parents when he was born. So she not only gave up control over her reputation, she not only gave up control over her life, but she gave up control over her son by, by accepting this and saying, I am not going to name him. He is going to eventually name me through the gospel. She was giving up control over her child. And for those of you who are mothers here, you know how difficult that is. You know how difficult that is. So she gave up control over her reputation. She gave up her reputation. She surrendered her, her, uh, her, surrendered her reputation, her control. And the other thing she surrendered is her comfort. Because from this moment on, it was going to be tough going for Mary. She was going to go through a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of anxiety, to the point where actually, in, in, later on in, in, in Luke, when she goes to the temple, or maybe it's in Matthew, when she goes to the temple to, to dedicate the child, Simeon, one of the older men, he takes the child and says, this child will be the rise and fall of many in Israel. And then, she, then he says, he will pierce your soul. So he's telling her ahead of time, you are going to go through pain, a lots of pain, intense pain. So when Mary says, I surrender, she is surrendering a lot more than just her body, but her reputation, her control, and her comfort. Now, here's the thing. 
Now, here's what I want you to see. The amazing thing about Mary is that she, think about it. She thinks first, she questions second, and then she surrenders, right? But what a lot of people, here's what a lot of us want. What a lot of us want, especially for the people in our lives that don't know Jesus, or maybe the people in our life that do know Jesus but are struggling in their faith, we want people to go from zero to three. We want people to go from not believing God to surrendering to God. But that's not what Mary does. Mary goes through an entire process. She thinks first, she questions second, she surrenders third. It's a process that Mary goes through. She has to go through that process. And so as you look at God, the thing that that blows my mind about how Mary responds to this is that Mary only has partial information, and yet she gives God complete surrender. Somebody missed that, so I'm going to go ahead and say that again. Mary has partial information, but gives God total and complete surrender. What we do is the opposite. When we're going through something, we want full and complete information, and then maybe we'll give God partial surrender. That's not how Mary does. Mary has partial information and gives God total surrender. That's how it works. That's how God works. God promises you, you're only ever going to get partial information, but I always want total surrender. Listen, when I was first called into ministry, I was at NIU, I was studying business, I was planning to make a bunch of money, I couldn't wait to be successful, and then I started feeling the Lord call me in the ministry, and I was terrified. I was terrified. For a long time, I didn't tell anybody. And then when I said that I did start telling people, and they would say, yeah, I think maybe it's from the Lord. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not, no, you're making that up. Someone paid you to say that. Like, I was just terrified. And then I got to a point where it was was like a fork in the road where I'm like, okay, I can keep pursuing information, but from what I'm seeing, I'm never going to get the full information I need. So at some point, I got to be content with the partial information and give God total surrender. At some point, that has to happen. And then when, we, when I planted this church, when we planted this church, it was the same thing all over again. I started feeling like God was calling me to plant a church. I'm like, nah, no, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. And then I slowly started praying about it. I slowly started talking to people about it. And, then, and, and, and over time, I, I got to a place where I was just waiting for God to say yes. God, just give me a clear yes. And then I, I sat with a missionary once, and the missionary said, listen, don't wait for God to say yes. Just go until God says no. Because God's, God's never going to say yes fully. And I had to come to a place where I had to be okay with the partial information, but not be okay with my partial submission and surrender. I had to be okay with partial information and give God my full surrender and my full submission. That's how God works. Okay? So, the first thing Mary does in response to the gospel is she thinks. The second thing she does is she questions. The third thing she does is surrenders. The fourth thing, according to the passage that Mary does, is she communes. She communes. And that comes from the next section. Look what it says here um, in verse 39. It says, At that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb, in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. So 
in light of the scripture, in light of the passage, the fourth thing Mary does as a result of this unexpected gospel is she goes looking for community. She goes to commune with other believers, okay? Now, in the passage, Luke is like the ultimate understater. Like, he doesn't exaggerate anything. So he makes it seem like she just took, you know, she just walked from one block to the other block. But actually, according to scholars, Elizabeth lived anywhere between 50 miles to 100 miles away from her, okay? This is before Uber, okay? So, so, so she gets the information, she finds out she's pregnant, and she takes a 50 to 100-mile journey to find Elizabeth. And it was most likely she did it by herself because there's no evidence that Joseph is with her. So she, a 13-year-old girl who just found out is pregnant, is so desperate for Christian community that she goes 50 to 100 miles to go find another Christian. Because she needed to find someone who would tell her she wasn't crazy. And if there was anyone who would believe the story that she had an unexpected birth announcement was the person who also had an unexpected birth announcement. Because Elizabeth being pregnant was just as unlikely as Mary being pregnant. Right? But think about what that journey would have been like. You see, because what's really interesting about the passage is that when the, the angel finishes making the promise, she's not excited. She's not ecstatic. She says, hey, I'm the Lord's servant, but she's not on cloud nine. You can tell she still has her reservations about all of it. So you got to imagine what that journey to, to Elizabeth's house was like. She's going over there and she's like, what if I get there and Elizabeth isn't pregnant and I made this all up? I'm going to look like an idiot. She's not expecting me so I can't, because I can't text her or email her ahead of time. So I'm going to show up at her house. And I'm going to be like, hey, what are you doing here? Well, I heard you're pregnant. Are you? Maybe? I don't know. She was taking a huge risk. She was taking a huge risk. So imagine the thoughts that are going through her head as she gets there. And then what's amazing is that when she gets there, God uses Christian community to confirm and to cement everything that he had already told her. Because think about this, and this is really easy to overlook in the passage. But since Mary had just heard the announcement, that means that when she got to Elizabeth's house a week later, she wasn't showing yet. She had no belly yet. So there's no way that Elizabeth would have known unless the Holy Spirit told her. There was no proof. And so she walks in, and Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, and it's the confirmation that she needed. It's like Elizabeth confirms and points her to Jesus. Says, hey, the gospel's real, and you actually did hear from an angel because that same angel spoke to me and my husband. It's almost like she had a bunch of puzzle pieces and only had part of the picture, and then when she met Elizabeth, Elizabeth had the rest of the pieces, and they made the picture together. It's crazy how beautiful that, that, that Christian community is. And here's the thing, if you were to ask me, and this is me, the pastor, I've studied theology, I read books all the time. If you were to ask me before I prepared the sermon this week, hey, if you were to put these, there's four parts to this story, right? And, and, and so, so Mary gets talked to by the angel, then Mary responds, and then Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and then there's the Magnificat, which is when she worships God. If you were to give me those four pieces of the story, and you were to ask me to put them in order, before I read and studied this passage, I would have put the praise of Mary right after the angel spoke to her. That's what I would have done, right? It makes sense. You just saw an angel. You had the, 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 the best devotional of all time, right? So you would think that the praise comes after the interaction with the angel. But if you look at the passage, that's not what happens. When, she, when the angel leaves, she's, 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 she's willing to submit, but she has no idea what she's submitting to. And what's, what's amazing is that her worship, her praise, her prayer doesn't come until after she experiences Christian community. 
She gets into a Christian community with someone who understands her and someone who understands the miracle that's happened to her and someone who gets the implications of the message that was declared to her. And then as she gets confirmation from Elizabeth and Elizabeth points her to Jesus, that's when she starts to worship and breaks down and breaks up into the, the part that we call the Magnificat. So it comes after the community. It doesn't come before the community. It comes after. So it wasn't the devotional that led her to Jesus in praise. It was the community that led her to Jesus in praise. So you know what that means, right? What that means, right, what that means is this, that if you are trying to do Christianity alone, you're not doing Christianity right. Christianity was never meant to be alone. You're supposed to do it with other people. And so some of you are sitting here today, and, 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 and you, you've been trying, you become a tri-village, you really enjoy it, but you feel like there's something missing. You feel like your walk with God is very one-dimensional. And what's missing is community. Because the only thing that God blesses outside of time with him is community with other believers. And just like with, with Elizabeth, that Elizabeth was the only person that could understand what she went through. If you're a Christian, Christians are the only people that can actually understand what you went through. If you go to an unsaved coworker and try to explain to them what Jesus did for you, they'd be like, huh? What? What is that? What are you talking about? You're, you're weird. Right? Christians are the only people that experience the same miracle you have. And so you have to get into community. Because when you get into community, what Christians do is they confirm God's truth in your life. They convict your sin in your life. And then what they do is they come alongside you and live life with you. And sometimes, and this is just me confessing, I will do seven or, 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 or seven days to ten days of intense Bible study by myself and get nothing from it. And then I'll go to one community group and get more out of my small group for an hour than I did for the 10, the 10 days by myself reading the Bible. I'll go through intense dry seasons in my own walk with Jesus in my devotional time. But I rarely have gone through dry seasons if I am in a community. Because when I sit there with a small group and we're all engaging and they're telling me, hey, you think this and I think this and I've never seen it that way and I never process it that way. Community does something to you and we need community if we are going to really experience the gospel. And what Mary shows us, if, if you really have experienced the gospel, you have to be in community. You have to be. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. You have to be. And so here's my question for you. How far are you willing to go for community? How, how far are you willing to travel to be in a small group, to be vulnerable, to be held accountable? How far are you willing to go? Because according to the passage, if you really understand the gospel, you will be in community. As a matter of fact, this week I was talking to one of our, uh, one of our attenders, and him and I were speaking about, about Rooted, that video that you guys saw. And he said to me, he's like, you know what's so interesting about Rooted? I was kind of, you know, eh, you know, not so excited about it. He's like, and then I did it, and he's like, listen, it's helped me so much that I think you shouldn't even invite people. I think you should tell people to do it. He's like, use all your pastoral authority and just tell people to do it. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that, bro. He's like, do it, right? Like he's like forcing me to do it. But you know why? Because he's like, I didn't realize what I was missing until I saw what I was missing. And for some of you, there's a huge hole in your Christianity, and that hole is a lack of community. Okay? So let's go back to the list. The first thing Mary does in response to this unexpected gospel is she thinks. The second thing she does is she questions. The third thing she does is she surrenders. The fourth thing she does is she communes. And then the fifth thing that Mary does is she worships. She worships. And look what it says in the next section after the community. She says, verse 46, And Mary said, 
My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Then, he, then she says, From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Then she says, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And I don't have the verse up there, but the last verse is, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for, three, for about three months and then returned home. So the fifth thing that Mary does as a result of her exposure to this unexpected gospel is she worships God. She worships God. Now, guys, remember, this is a teenage girl. She is 13, maybe 14 years old because you were betrothed right after puberty. So she's 13, maybe 14 years old. And so I need you to keep this in mind as we look at how this girl worships because her worship is ridiculous. It's crazy. Actually, what, what scholars say is that there's over 20 Old Testament references just in this little prayer because she was so saturated with the Bible. The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This girl was in God's word because it all comes out as she starts praising God here, okay? Now, if you go back to the previous section where she begins the prayer, there's a couple things here that she says that I need to highlight for you. The first thing she says reveals how, 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 how intense and internal, in, internal her praise is because she says, my soul and my spirit. And it seems like she's talking about two different things, but it's just a play on words. She's actually talking about the same thing, my soul and my spirit. Now, the reason why it's so important is she says that my soul and my spirit glorify God and rejoice in God. Now, here's why this is important, because your soul is deeper than your mind. Your soul is deeper than your emotions. Your soul is deeper than your will and your behavior. Your soul is your inner core person. So what she's saying is that I am worshiping the Lord with my inner being with the depths of my person. I'm not just loving God with my heart and not my mind or with my will and not my, 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 you know, my, my heart or whatever, fill in the blank. She said, I'm worshiping God with my soul. My entire person is worshiping the entire person of God. That is deep, deep worship. And then it gets even better because she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. The word glorify there, again, I, the NIV is kind of weird sometimes, but the word glorify there in Greek, it means to magnify. It means to make something bigger. It means to zoom in on something. It means to enlarge something. And so what she's saying is that her soul, her inner being, her inner person, the depths of her person is consumed and she's consumed by the magnifying of God. So it's like she has a magnifying glass and the focus of the magnifying glass is God. That's worship. You see, what, what a lot of worship today in our day is, is you take the magnifying glass and you flip it at you. It's all about how I feel and what I do and, 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 and what, what I'm going to do. Worship is not about you. It's not about me. The first Christian sings the first Christmas carol, and it's all about God. The whole thing. And then she says, my soul glorifies, and then she says, my spirit rejoices. And the word rejoice there is not like a happy, huh, yeah, you know, like, you know, like a, like a golf clap, right? Like, but like, it's like, this is like rejoicing. Here's, what, here's what, what rejoicing there means. Rejoicing, in the Greek, it means to be overjoyed. It means exceeding joy. 
It means joy that is so over the top that your body has to manifest itself in some way. Your body reacts to the joy because you're so joyful. So not only is it very internal, her worship, but it's also very intense. It's extremely intense. And then I love what she says in verse 48. She says, for he, look at, look at the, 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 the two extremes. On the one hand, she has a low view of herself. And on the other hand, she has a high view of herself. Because she says, he has been mindful of the, uh, of the humble state of his servant. That's the low view. And then right afterwards, she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So she has a very low view of herself on the one hand, but a very high view of herself on the other. Why? Because she understands the gospel. See, the reason why she has a low view of herself is because she realizes that Jesus had to die for her because of her sin. But she has a high view of herself because she realizes that Jesus was glad to die for her because of his love. Every, every Christian, no one in your life should have a higher view of you or a lower view of you. You should have both. You should have the lowest view because you're so sinful that you realize Jesus had to die for you, right? But at the same time, you should have the highest view of yourself because you're so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you. And that's her worship. It's God-centered, gospel-centered, Jesus-focused. It's just so crazy. And so here's my question for you this morning. Who or what are you magnifying this morning? What is the, magnify, what is the magnifying uh, glass of your soul focused on? Is it a problem? Is it a person? Is it your finances? Is it your children? Is it your singleness? Is it your past? Is it your future? What is the magnifying, of your, the magnifying glass of your soul focused on? What are you zooming in on? What is the largest thing in your life right now? I'll tell you what. If it's not Jesus, then you're not rejoicing. Because the glorifying and the rejoicing go hand in hand. What, ask yourself this. What makes me overjoyed? When I think of this Christmas season, what makes me overjoyed? What makes me, what makes me exceedingly joyful? Is it presents? Is it your family coming over? Is it uh, dinner? Is, is, it, is it, I don't know, what, what, your, your Christmas bonus? But if, 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 if the thing that makes you exceedingly joyful is not Jesus, then you're committing idolatry and you are not rejoicing. Then you're not rejoicing. And every year we do the same thing, man. Every year. Like every year, the, the, the present people look forward to presents. The party people look forward to parties. The, the bonus people look forward to bonuses. And every year they think this is the year this thing's going to satisfy me. And then it lets them down again. I see it. Whenever you, you're with someone who expects everything from the family party, and then they're cleaning up after, and they're like, ugh. You fall for it all over again. Why? Because you're magnifying, you're, it's, you're magnifying and rejoicing in something smaller than Jesus. So let's go back to the list. Mary reacts to the unexpected gospel in six ways, and we've looked at five. First thing she does is she thinks. The second thing she does is she questions. The third thing she does is she surrenders. The fourth thing she does is she communes. The fifth thing she does is she worships. And the last thing Mary does is she foreshadows. Now, out of all the things that Mary does, this is the most inadvertent one. This is the most involuntary one. This is the one that she doesn't even know she's doing because she doesn't know enough about the Bible to know that she's doing it, okay? All the other ones were on purpose. This one, she doesn't even know that she's actually doing it. And what we believe in light of Scripture is that the person who Mary is foreshadowing is Jesus. The reason who, the, the person that this mother is foreshadowing is her son, okay? 
Now here, and I need you to, to, to dial in, here is where Christians and Catholics divide. Okay? Because what we as Christians believe is that Mary foreshadows Jesus, but we do not believe that Mary is on par with Jesus. See, what we believe is that Mary reveals Jesus, but we don't believe that Mary replaces Jesus. And what Catholics believe, if someone is a Catholic and actually reads their theology, here's what a Catholic person would believe. They believe that Mary is sinless. She's sinless and had immaculate conception herself, which I don't really know when the line stops because if she had to be immaculately conceived, then that means her grandpa, like where does it stop? Like is it everybody? You know, where does it stop? But, but she was immaculately conceived. And here's what a, what, a, what, a, what a Catholic who knows their theology would tell you. They would tell you that Mary is now the queen of heaven. That's what they describe her as. And that right now, Jesus, we're, we learn about in John that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. What a Catholic would tell you is that Mary is standing at the right hand of Jesus. And that she is, our, she is the co-mediator and the co-redeemer of, of, of all people. And they also believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. In other words, Mary never actually got down. Like, never actually had sex. Like, she just stayed, you know, pure the whole time. And if I was Joseph, that would have bothered me a lot. You know what I mean? Like, like wait, 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 wait. What's God's plan? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We did the Jesus thing. I got that. But come on, girl. You know what I mean? Like, holla at your boy, right? And so, but the reason why you know, the reason why you know that's not the case is because later on in John, Jesus has a buttload of brothers. There's so many of them. There's like, there's Judas and John and Benedict. Like, there's, there's tons of them. There's tons of them. James is one of the writers of the New Testament. He was Jesus' half-brother. So, so clearly that's not the case either, right? And so the problem with Catholic theology is that all the things that it teaches about Mary, none of them are found in the Bible. And that's not to criticize Catholics. That's not to be demeaning. It's just to say that everything we believe has to come from Scripture. And if your whole view of a person, none of it comes from Scripture, then you're in trouble. Because what the Bible tells us is that Mary is not full of grace. The Bible says that Mary is in need of grace. The Bible doesn't say that Mary is a dispenser of grace. The Bible says that Mary is a recipient of grace. See? And, and, and even Mary in her own prayer, at one point she describes herself as favored. Actually, Elizabeth describes herself as favored, which the word favored has to do with grace. And then later on, Mary says that she rejoices in God, her Savior. Listen, if you need grace and God is your Savior, you know what that means? You're a sinner. And so if there's anybody that would be bothered by, her, by Mary being worshipped, it's Mary. Nobody would be more bothered by it than Mary. Because she understood the gospel better than most. That's so important. But here's what I want to do as, as, as we start winding down here. I, wanna, I don't want to end this sermon pointing to Mary because if we do that, then we're doing the very thing that I'm saying we shouldn't do. Because at the end of the day, the reason why this last point is so important is because Mary, she foreshadows someone else. She foreshadows someone greater, someone bigger, okay? Now, here's what's amazing. When you look at her prayer, she uses the aorist tense seven times in her prayer. The aorist tense in the Greek means that it's past tense. But if you read it what she, about what she says, everything that she says is going to happen later. So just like Zechariah a couple weeks ago, he's using the past tense to describe the future. Because she so believes the gospel that she knows that God's going to do everything that he said he's going to do. And then what's amazing, and one of the pastors that I listened to said this, he said that she uses three words to describe God. She describes him as mighty, she describes him as holy, and she describes him as with mercy. So mighty, holy, and mercy. Here's what this means. Since he's mighty, that means he can do something. 
Since he's holy, it means he will do something. And since he's merciful, it means he wants to do something. The whole prayer is about God. The whole prayer is about her son. Mary doesn't want to be the center of attention. The whole prayer is about the son that's about to arrive. And what's amazing about Jesus is that Jesus is going to show up one day, and he's going to show up on the scene as a child and then later on as a man. And in 33 years, she's, he's going to experience all the things that Mary experiences partially on his behalf. He's going to experience fully on her behalf. Because what she does here, she prays a prayer of submission. She says, I am your servant, your will be done. Her very son was going to pray that same prayer later on in his life. I am your servant and your will be done, right? And, and by, by praying the way she prayed, she could have, have had shame. She could have, have been killed, but she never is. But Jesus, by praying that prayer, he did get shame and he was killed. So he took everything she did partially and he did it fully. And then when she prays that, prays that prayer of submission, she got God's presence. When Jesus prayed that prayer of submission, he got God's absence. He took it to a whole nother level. He took it to a whole nother level. So, so everything Mary does partially, Jesus shows up and does it fully. And, and, and even as, as his mom, she was willing to die for him. But as her savior, he did die for her. She was willing, but he did. That's the gospel. And so Mary points us to Jesus, who is the ultimate Mary. The, the, the mother points us to the son. The son doesn't point us to the mother. The mother points us to the son. Uh, the, the, the mother points us to the son. You see, here's the thing. If Mary were here today, what Mary would tell you is that her ultimate identity is not in the fact that she delivered the Son of God, but her identity comes from the fact that at the cross, her Savior delivered her. Her identity doesn't come from the fact that she bore Jesus, but her identity comes from the fact that at the cross, her Savior bore her sin. Her identity doesn't come from the fact that she's the mother of God. Her identity comes from the fact that she is a daughter of God. That's her identity. That's what she gets it from. All of her value and all of her acceptance. Her ultimate identity doesn't come from how much she loves her son. Her ultimate identity came from how much her son loved her. That's the gospel. And that's why Mary is ultimately the, the, the point. She's not the end in itself. She's a, an arrow, a, a signpost that points us to Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfiller of all the things that Mary did partially. He did the full submission. He got full shame. He got full death. He got full absence from God. He did that for you and for me. And that's when we got to understand that. We got to lean into that. This is not about Mary. This is not about me. This is not about you. It's about Jesus. And that's why later on in the passage, when, when she talks about the type of people who God blesses, she says you have to be humble and you have to be hungry and you have to be poor. And the reason why is because humble people, go, they go to the bottom so that God can lift them up. Hungry people will be filled. Poor people will be provided for. Inadequate people will find a Savior who is adequate for their needs. We have to go down in order for God to lift us up. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And we need to understand that. We need to get to that place. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. What, 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 what most blows my mind, and if you're a mother here this morning, you understand this more than anyone. I can't think of any love on planet earth that is stronger than a mother for her son. But you know one, the one love that's stronger? The love of a savior for his people. That's what defined Mary. Not what she did for him, but what he did for her. Amen? Let's pray.